Previously on Some Like It Pops Making a Musical, hosted by Jennifer McHugh. There are moments when you hear something and you know that's the million dollar idea. These two kind of rambunctious nerds have been trying to use science to win themselves popularity. The roles are very demanding, both in terms of what the actors have to be able to do comedically, dramatically, and what they have to be able to do vocally. Something goes wrong and Griff turns invisible. I heard his pitch and it pushed every single one of my buttons as far as what I wanted to do artistically, what I wanted to say. Here's a show that's about what it means to see another human being, but is actually a broad comedy, but I get to write pop music. Yeah, it's about how about that, huh? kind of useful being invisible. Thank you for tuning into part three of our series on Invisible the Musical. Today, we're chatting with three of the main actors from the staged reading and discussing their experience with originating roles in a new musical. Okay, so let's start with some introductions. We have three of the actors from the production with us here today. We have Michael Thomas Grant, played the lead role of Griff. Hi, Michael. Hi. We have Dan Ammerman, and he is playing Kemper, the, and I quote from David Orris, the pervy sidekick. <laughs> and we have the lovely Ashley Argata, and she plays our ingenue hemlock. It's the solution. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. Now you have the the three of them are joining us along with the creators, David Orris and David Hollingsworth. And we would just like to pick your brains a little bit about your process with this show. So starting with Michael, could each of you tell us how this project first came to you? Well, I think it was it was a, a basic like in, invitation uh, audition kind of process. We, we just kind of went in and, and read, I think, at least David or us, maybe both of the Davids had seen us, seen each of us perform in different things. And so we just kind of got brought into that process. It was, it's, I, Michael's yeah. being humble. In the case of all four of them, I hounded them relentlessly until they agreed. <laughs> yeah, kinda, well, but like in a good way. It was endearing. <laughs> Yeah, it was basically the same for me as well. Uh, David Orris had, I think, seen me in a play a couple of years ago or seen me in something. And then we, our paths just kind of like kept missing each other over the course of the years of different readings. And then uh, it finally was able to line up that we were able to do this reading together, just schedule-wise. But we just had kind of stayed in touch over email and kept running into each other, um, like basically backstage of shows, <laughs> like doing a show, coming out afterwards and being like, oh, it's you again. Like, you're here again. Uh, and then it just kind of worked out. Kind of the same thing for me. Um, I got an email from, I think it was David Orris, right? And I think, if I remember correctly, he said he came across um, videos of me singing in a show that I did at Rockwell. And um, I, I got it. Like, a few emails later, I was attached to the show. We were doing it. We had a couple friends in common, and she was kind enough to, to uh, read my prattle. And as we- <laughs> As with all three of them, except that I was not going to give up. It's obvious that either of the Davids knew you all through mutual friends or personal connections, but did the three of you actually know each other before this? Uh, this is Michael. Uh, <laughs> Ashley, Ashley and I, we knew each other prior through, right? Yeah, yeah. we did. Through just shows that we'd done together yeah. previously. And then... I didn't know this until I met Dan, but we actually did um, a show together. Was it last year, Dan? 
Yeah, at this point, it was like two years ago, probably, or maybe a year. Yeah, ago. something like that. We did uh, we did Gypsy together. But it was so, like a one. But it was like a one yeah. night only Gypsy. It wasn't like we rehearsed for three weeks and then like when we met each other again, we we're like, oh yeah, we did a play together. And no, it was yeah. like a one night, it was like no rehearsal, one night only reading type thing. You do Gypsy? I was like, oh yeah. That is actually interesting. I, 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 for some reason, I don't think I ever put together that we all met at Confidential. Musical theater project. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, like all of our official first meetings, because that's that's when uh, Ashley and I first like had our introduction. We had like seen each other around, but that's that's cool. I yeah. was fortunate enough to see the production in Burbank. The first comment I made to David Orris, who I met afterwards, was the chemistry between the three of you and Jordan, who I adored um, <laughs> all together. So it it just seemed like you had known each other for a really long time. So kudos on that. Michael, starting with you, could you describe your character and um, not only in the show, but what you brought to it? Yeah, Griff is, um, he's, he's your, your standard nerdball. He just wants a better life. He wants to be respected like any human being. Basically, extremely unhappy with the status quo and wants the status to be less quo and um, kind of wants to try and subvert the, the normal high school uh, hierarchy. I guess he kind of succeeds in that uh, at, by the end of the show, but in, in doing so, he kind of learns that, yeah, if you, you can just be a giant, ballsy, invisible kid instead of being just like, a, you know, making yourself into, into your own stereotype. Uh, but as far as bringing what I got to bring to it, I think I got to bring a little bit more of the madness aspect into that process for what he goes through when he's you know, going through his invisibility phase and stuff like that and his seeming abandonment from his friends and stuff like that. I think I got uh, to delve a little bit deeper into his psychosis and and stuff like that. So that was super fun for me. And Ashley, do you want to um, talk about Hemlock a little bit? Hemlock was, uh, she's the very dark, you know, like sarcastic best friend of Griffin Kemper. And I don't know, I kind of like to think she was the sound mind between between their insanity yeah. when they try to make themselves into the popular guys and then they do become invisible. She's kind of the person who's like, hey, maybe let's rethink a lot of things because this could end badly or you guys are crazy. Please stop doing this. As for what I brought to the character, I kind of tried to make her, because I know she was really dark and really sarcastic, but also... I didn't want her to be unlikable. I wanted I wanted to sort of bring a sweetness to her if I could, because if Griff really liked her, then there like there had to be something for him to fall in love with, right? <laughs> That's a great description, actually. Yeah, so I, don't laugh at me. Um, so I tried I tried to bring a little bit of a sweet side to Hemlock. And Dan, I'm hesitant to ask how similar you are to your character. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just like my character. <laughs> no, my character is like a super like horn dog, also nerd, but uh, j- totally motivated by just wanting to um, like uh, the play would be get a girlfriend and be able to spend quality time with her. <laughs> but he he phrases it in a much more um, perverted way. But like, yeah, I mean, he, he just really wants to be popular for that end. Um, and then, uh, the way, you know, the, the plot plays out that, 
uh, he ends up becoming popular and kind of makes him lose track of his values. So I think for me, that was like the the major thing to just kind of track is like just having fun. Whereas, whereas like uh, Michael and Ashley too, they had to be, they had to carry the real drama of the show. Um, my stuff was a lot sort of funnier uh, a lot of the time. So my job was basically like to have fun with being a like, girl obsessed, then have fun with being popular guy, and then experience like a fall from grace from there. But for most of the time, it was just like having fun with being that kind of like teenager guy who just doesn't have his values in order. <laughs> that was so polite. And please uh, know you can speak freely. I appreciate your... <laughs> I appreciate your boobs. Your, he likes boobs. <laughs> I appreciate your Disney version of it, but you can speak freely whenever you want. David's—that's <laughs> plural. Would either of you like to um, chime in on your thoughts on these three characters? Well, I think uh, as as all three said, they they actually ended up in, in in certain ways bringing a lot of really good vulnerability and sweetness to all three characters. It's funny that that uh, Ashley even mentioned the um, kind of the being the the stabilizing rational because I, I kind of purposefully baked in a bit of a nerd reference just in how the three characters relate to one another, where um, they kind of end up being the uh, Kirk, Spock, McCoy trio, where um, Kemper is kind of the Kirk id, uh, Griff is sort of the the Spock logician, and uh, Hemlock is the McCoy like super ego yes, we can do this, but should we kind of a uh, kind of mentality. And all three of them, I think actually really, really tapped into that while bringing just a lot of really fun, high energy to it and each bringing their own kind of sweetness. And it was great. Actually, I, what I really liked is um, I wrote Kemper with uh, a lot of like Anthony Michael Hall characters in mind, but Dan ended up bringing a bit of a kind of Michael J. Fox swagger and, um, I don't know, just sort of, sort of confidence to it that uh, that I I just, really just enjoyed. So you know, Ashley is. I was clapping. Ashley was in, in the middle of a in the middle of a Starbucks parking lot. It was great. It's great. I sorry, continue. But I just wanted you to know that she was like doing yeah. her like preach clap. Yeah, that's great. I, um, I, additionally, like like Griff, kind of more than I'd like to admit, is based off of a lot of my own nerdy tendencies and kind of my manic tendencies. And uh, and Michael was fantastic at, at at bringing that out. A lot of kind of sweet puppy dog ish um, obsession, but also uh, kind of like, well, like wait a minute, this logically makes sense, so so it was no problem, right? And God damn it, I I, I really just loved Ashley's um, take on uh, she she was able to be sarcastic but smile a lot, but it was she has this smile that actually it kind of invites you in while pushing out. It's really good. Yeah, and I think Ashley made a really good point about trying to bring that sweetness. Otherwise, you wouldn't believe that Griff would fall for her because I think that that's a, a really valuable quality, especially in a high school girl with such like a dark, nothing bothers me, everything's okay. But obviously, there's a side to her that, and and Ashley did a brilliant job in, in portraying that. And it was very obvious to see why, you know, Griff couldn't help but fall for her. <laughs> this is David Orris. And the, and the thing that the three of them probably won't say is that, it's an absurd score to sing. So on top of having to do all these kind of actually deceptively intricate things as actors, they also, all three of these characters and Jordan too, have to be able to just sing their faces off, which all of them can do in spades. As you heard, Jen, these, these guys are kind of walking on water.
Michael, uh, the thing about the the score being so difficult, even from like a technical perspective, is that it, it kind of forces you to to get to those moments emotionally too. Because uh, I mean, for right. at, least, at least for me, because like I, you know, if if you're not like all in in those songs, you, you know, you're not going to be able to sing them. Yeah. So so it, it it kind of you know necessitated that level of that level of emotion. Yeah. So I, if, if anything, you know, it made the job easier. That's a great segue because I would like to ask all three of you, starting with Michael, what was your favorite song to perform? Uh, Reign of Terror, definitely. Yes. Yeah. Oh, my God. Any Anything in which I get to become a, an absolute madman. You, I, like, I, turn red during Oh, my God. I revel in it. So good. For the people listening, can you just describe a little bit about the song? Uh, yeah, Reign of Terror is when um, Griff is pretty much at his wits end. He's been uh, helping Kemper kind of become popular, and then he sort of realizes that he's not really being put first, he's not being put second. He's an afterthought to this person that's been his best friend for past eight years. It's kind of been so. Then he he just kind of goes goes a little goes a little cuckoo and kind of swears his revenge. It's really fun to be in in the moment. I hope. I mean, I hope everyone else liked it as much as I did. <laughs> <laughs> and where does it occur in the show? Um, it's actually I think like second half of the second act. give us your favorite song to perform yeah i think i mean my favorite one was girl in the dark it's a uh, moment where hemlock admits that she is so in love with griff <laughs> and michael's making a face at me yeah
don't know. It's just, it's so beautifully written. And I was just so honored to get to sing the song. And the other song that I so loved, and I didn't get to sing in it, but I was in the number, was Your Very Best Friend. It's actually <laughs> something that um, our teacher sings to Hemlock. And he's basically saying, like, don't tell this guy how you really feel. Just skirt around it. And Luke, who played our teacher, was just so hysterical during that number. And then we also have some of our ensemble playing the janitors who back him up in that song. And it cracked me up every night because I would just look, I would look back at them and they were doing these really silly dances and they knew that I thought it was funny. So they would like exaggerate it. And it was like such a, I didn't have, I didn't sing in the number, but like, it was just such a joy to even be a part of that number. I do remember that one. That was awesome. Yes. I loved, I loved the teacher. Can you say his name again? Uh, Luke Clip. Shout out Guys, to Luke Clip. Okay. Yeah, Luke. We love Luke. Uh, Dan, do you want to weigh in on this? Sure. Um, I think my favorite song to sing in was like the Act One finale, One Small Step. Um, I just like that one because it's it's uh, really epic, uh, and all of everyone is singing at once, and everyone's it's sort of it's it's got one of those awesome Act One finale things where like every character's theme kind of like starts overlapping, which is like my favorite thing about musicals. And we also that's like a, a good emotional climactic point because it's the point where we we seize power from the bullies. So it just feels like for the whole first act, we're just these kind of nerds that are getting made fun of, and then in this moment we become the like leaders and. You just feel awesome because <laughs> it just feels like you're finally, you made it or something like that. So yeah, I love I love doing that one, and I love all the harmonies in that that I get to with Michael. And then the the song that I probably most commonly am singing to myself in the shower is like not uh, not something that I even sing, but uh, Michael's song that now I finally see at the very end. I am constantly <laughs> singing that song to myself, and it's not even my song. I just think that song is, is so pretty. Um, it, that's one of my favorite things about the show. It's just that there are some shows, there are some songs that are really funny and really epic but there's all these like for like a teen comedy there's these really sweet beautiful ballads in it too that i just love uh yeah so i i, I love the mix of those genres david Orris, do you want to talk i know I, I i could never ask you to pick your favorite performance because that's like which is your favorite child but in looking at these guys and and things that they accomplished is there a particular moment musically that stood out to you and that always got to you every night it would be hard to pick one, to be honest. I think they, they all picked their favorites, and I was just kind of nodding, going, yeah, that was kind of my favorite that they did. Um, I I have a real thing for one small step, too, the end of Act One, Closer, like Dan. And um, I have a real thing for Girl in the Dark. I, I will say, and I kind of turned to someone when it was happening, when 
our second night at 3D Theatricals when they were performing Now I Can Finally See, I actually started crying and I turned to my boyfriend and I was like, is this douchey? <laughs> Should I be crying to my own piece? But just um, the way that uh, Michael and Ashley, their chemistry and Michael has an unbelievable voice and we had this unbelievable cast and this great band, the way it was all working together. It was kind of what Dan said about when everything is kind of working together in a musical everybody's moment is culminating that's kind of one of my favorite things about musicals too so kind of everything they said (laughs) david hollingsworth before i jump in and ask the kids i say kids lovingly um about their influences regarding the time period can you just speak a little about your influences with the writing of this time period yeah i've drawn mostly from the kind of uh sub 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 genre of 80s teen sex comedies that were about nerds who kind of have superpowers. For some reason, I guess in the 80s, we we kind of all decided that nerds were inherently magical in some way, or at least in in some sense, supernatural. And uh, so there's there's a bunch of these things like Zapped and Weird Science and Teen Wolf, where uh, these sort of low status kids are somehow given this boon kind of based on the fact that they are nerds and low status. And uh, I I thought that that would be uh, really fun to play with something really classic like H.G. Wells' The Invisible Man, uh, because that book itself is actually really about nerd rage when you think about it. It's a it's sort of a story of basically revenge for uh, all the people that dumped your books. But uh, yeah, so so. Um, uh, in general, a lot of uh, 80s teen sex comedy, just John Hughes all over the place. Those were really the things that uh, I drew on to uh, kind of get the uh, the milieu that we're working in. I think in the in the script notes, it's a hyper pastel, uh, garish high school, you know, filled with a lot of these kind of stock uh, 80s types and then um, celebrating nerddom in that arena. I think nerds are supernatural in the, in the best way possible. <laughs> Um, so back to you guys, uh, Michael, Dan, and Ashley. From what I saw, I'm assuming you guys are in your mid-20s. And if I'm wrong, congratulations, because you're doing it great. Um, but <laughs> I just had the feeling that you were not of an observatory age during this time period. So transporting yourself into the mid-80s with all of this you know, craziness and the wild colors and did you did you fall on any of these like sex comedies that he spoke of for inspiration, or do you have particular movies from that time that you always go back to? I know that David had mentioned that you Michael had almost had a Michael J. Fox kind of a character, but is there anything in particular that you use for inspiration? You can start, Michael. Um, yeah, I uh, I actually got to do a show a couple years ago, and there's this L.A. cabaret type theater series called for the record and i was actually i got to play the anthony michael hall track for a john hughes show so i i got to play a, you know a much more caricatured version uh of him so i got to play basically all the anthony michael hall roles in all of john hughes's films as well as uh ducky and ferris bueller so i definitely got to got to connect with those films in that in during that show but the cool part about this was that i i felt like i got to i had permission to be a bit more of like a human being instead of that 
you know, instead of that nerd caricature, you know, after, oddly enough, after high school, I got kind of allowed myself to get way more into um, cartoons and Dungeons and Dragons and all that stuff. So I got to draw from those those kind of experiences as well and, and people I got to meet going through all of that stuff. Um, so, so I, yeah, I, I'd been like a big John Hughes fan for a bit when I, when I finally got to do this show. So that was, that was cool. I um, actually saw that. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I can't believe that was you. Okay. Sorry. That was about me. Keep going. No, no, no. I mean, that's, that's, that's great. Uh, we, everything was double cast. So you might've seen a, a small, a small Jewish man by the name of Alex Wise, who is my favorite human alive performance. So, you know, it, it, it might not have been me. Who knows? But um, but yeah, no, that was that. It was cool to kind of get to do that take and and feel real. And you know, the the relationships within John Hughes were uh, that whole series felt felt real. But I feel like I kind of got to connect a little bit more in, intensely with this. Ashley, <laughs> I don't have that intricate of an answer. Sorry. I will say, though, that, funny enough, I did not realize our story took place in the 80s until, I want to say, like, the first week of rehearsal. And I heard one of the Davids say something about the 80s. I think they were talking about, like, a scenario in the show. And they're like, haha, that's what we get for putting it in the 80s. And I kind of looked at him and I was like, I've read the script a million times. What do you mean the 80s? <laughs> went back and like scanned it and went oh it's in the 80s oh, um, wow. so no, I, know. I mean well it's i'm it's, very pretty you guys well, um, it's timeless it's timeless so that's kind it's of the... true um so i didn't actually base it on on any 80s thing at all um but somebody i did grab inspiration from was uh i'm blanking on her name right now but she is from two broke girls the really sarcastic one why can't Kat, i remember her Kat name Denning. that's her name because i felt like she she's a really great example of somebody who plays be very sarcastic but is also very funny and can be very sweet oh yeah okay dan um well i love like back to the future and i love like pretty in pink and ferris bueller so I, i was familiar enough with those kinds of movies to know that kind of um that kind of world um i feel like even those those are 80s movies those are still sort of the quintessential kind of um, high school movies that have been made. So I was definitely familiar with that stuff. But I feel like also our characters, the three of us, were not as heightened 80s. Like there's definitely other characters that if you just look at their wardrobe were insanely 80s of five with like, you know, shoulder pads and crazy hair and that kind of stuff. Uh, more of the popular kids, like the popular kids got to do the popular 80s stuff, whereas the nerds um, pretty much look like nerds from today. Um, so I didn't really feel like I had to like play 80s at all, but it, it was good to just have the reference points uh, for little jokes here and there and things like that, just so that we understood exactly like, what was happening moment to moment. I did, today, and I started to think, well... What if there's another way? I don't like this. What if all this stuff that we obsessed over was just holding us back and blocking us from our true potential? What if it all isn't even worth obsessing over? And then I got to thinking, you know, Star Trek The Next Generation has been a real weak imitator to the original series. Okay. Well, 
First of all, it's only been two seasons, and second, Picard is a totally different captain than Kirk! Then I got to thinking, are all these comic books really that good? And what has Chess Club really done for me lately? And why the hell do I spend so much time reading Dune? No! And then it struck me, Griff, honestly, I'm not that crazy about Star Trek the original series either. We're just saying things that we don't mean anymore, so I'm just going to pretend I didn't hear anything you said. And Join me. <laughs> what? You and I, we can cast off our nerdy chains and rule this school with the power of very mainstream pop cultural tastes. Why, I've already started watching sports. No. No. That's not true. That's impossible! <laughs> Search your feelings. You know it to be true. Now come on, step up to the plate with me, and we'll kick a, a big touchdown right through the net together. I'm kind of still getting used to the whole sport. You're obviously not yourself right now. Yeah, because I think the point of the show is not like, let's do an 80s show. It's just, I, I think it's more of just a nod to... Um, it's like an homage to some of these types of great stories about these... Um, these kinds of teenage struggles and stuff that happened to come out in the 80s. So it's sort of like a little nod to that by setting it there. But it's not like it's... It, the same story could take place at any time. Uh, it's just a bit of a choice, you know? I'm going to throw this out to everybody, um, but I'll probably do roll call so you don't all talk at once. Obviously, there's a lot of social issues included in the show, starting anywhere from, you know, high school inadequacy to bullying to, you know, coming out of the closet and et cetera. Could each of you tell me what you thought was a really important thing that was not only in this musical, but is also relevant, not only in the 80s, but today? Who wants to start? How about David Orris? Oh, boy. You know, when uh, the seed of the idea was David Hollingsworth, he pitched it. And I think the very first thing I heard is what to me is most important in the show that is universal today, which is what I think the show is really about, which is in the in our sort of youth obsessed, self obsessed culture. And, and the show's meant to be fun. I'm not trying to say that we're this like that invisible is this giant message show, but there's a heart to it. And I think the heart of it is that uh, when I win, you win. And it's not about me. It's about seeing another person. And that when we can all learn that, I'm going to sound like a, the Disney-fied version of our show again, but everybody wins. Um, that it's, it's not about me. It's about us. I love that. Hollingsworth? Well, I had a, um, this, this is besides talking about having a gay character and kind of the obvious anti-bullying issues that we kind of deal with. I almost wanted to flip a little bit on the head of, I guess, almost a commentary on something that I am actually a little dissatisfied with in just nerd culture, which is kind of this idea that women um, in particular for, for male nerds are sort of these puzzles to figure out and that uh, there's sort of a step-by-step -step process to wooing them, which uh, I guess culminates in stuff like pickup artistry and stuff like that. But that I feel like there's a little bit of an undercurrent in a lot of American male nerd culture, regardless if there's an actual like mystery or the game person involved. So, so some an, an issue that I really wanted to touch on was to kind of argue against that a little bit that that people aren't problems, people aren't um, you know 
things that you just have to input data into in order to get the result that you want. They're human beings and they need to be treated like that. So, uh, so that's something actually I, uh, that's maybe not the most pressing (laughs) issue of our times, but it's something I really wanted to talk about. And so that's, that's the lesson that I think Griff learns by the end. Yeah, I would have to agree. Dan? I think that in the, the last song, there's like a part that kind of brings the show to a close where basically there's the major theme of the show of like Griff becoming invisible and then like the good and the bad that comes with that. But then I like the kind of the subtextual theme of the idea that like no one is invisible. And even if someone is lower profile or quiet or not the person winning prom king or whatever, like that person still has as much of a story and as much of a character and a full life. I think it's really easy. I think some, this is like a, maybe a young person's thought, but I remember being in high school and really feeling like I was the protagonist of my story of my own like life's journey and feeling like other people were obviously important, but that they were sort of like supporting characters in my like more important movie. And then I think as I got older and realized like, Oh, like everyone feels that way. Everyone is the protagonist of their story. And so it, it like, uh, and I think a lot of the characters in this show need to learn that and then eventually do learn that. And, and the audience hopefully learns it by watching that like, oh, we're not focused on the king and the queen of the school. We're not focused on those people. We're focused on the people that if you went to that school, you might not even know that they were your classmate. And those people are you know just as valuable as everyone else. And so kind of recognizing the, the value of everyone's perspective, I think, is a, a really useful thing to keep in mind. Thank you for tuning in to part three of our series on Invisible the Musical. Tune in next time where we will continue speaking to our three main actors, as well as chat with a fourth principal actor about his experience with originating a new role. You know, it's still very heavily involved in pop culture, but but definitely... Um, in on the, uh, the science, science Sorry, there's a small child passing us right small, now. Small baby child who doesn't have his money. Um, <laughs> I'm not hitting on you, Ashley. I swear. I just thought that it was adorable. <laughs> Thank you. Masturbatory euphemism sounds like a Coachella band. Oh yeah, that's, no, that's, right. that's my. That's it my, probably is. That's a that's a super group. If if I if I can extrapolate on Hollingsworth's thing, if that's cool, I don't, cool. I don't, I don't know because I feel like I'm stepping on your thing. You're not stepping on my thing. Okay, you're a valid human being. Okay. I respect you. Michael's um, chiming in now. Cool. Yeah. <laughs> hey guys, I'm Michael. <laughs> <laughs>